Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, truly we pray that you help us to be open to your word, to be truly honest before you and transparent, to show us the error of our ways and to show us the right way. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm sure all of you know uh, someone like this, right? Uh, because I've experienced it and I'm sure you've experienced it. You know that person in school who never seems to study but always seems to get A's. You know that sort of person? That person where you're struggling away and everything seems like a mess of spaghetti but they seem to be getting everything really easily and you know, understanding everything's first up. I was never like that. Maybe someone else you know, someone at work. You know that, that sort of person who seems to find everything easy at work, who keeps getting promoted very, very fast, and you, here you are struggling away, and everything you do seems to be riddled with mistakes. Maybe you know someone like that. Or maybe it's someone else who seems to have the perfect family life, you know, where their children are always obedient and study very hard and get A's and never give their parents any trouble. Right? Or maybe it's that someone, that the high school friend of yours, who always seems to make the right investment. You know, like they seem to have this gift of multiplying money and then recently, you found that they, they now own a house in Sentosa Cove. Right? Maybe you know, you know those sort of people. Now, in the eyes of the world, we would say that these people are really fortunate. They have it made. Right? They are really, really blessed. Some people would say they're really blessed that they have all these things. But in today's passage, the question we, we, we want to ask ourselves is, who is really blessed in the eyes of God? Who is really fortunate? And in today's passage, it begins only eight verse, uh, 11 verses, so it's not very long, but there's a whole depth to it, right? It begins in verse 1 and 2, and it says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. Now, it's very important to pay attention to the words in the Bible, and the first word here is blessed, isn't it? It's repeated twice. Blessed is he in verse 1. Blessed is the man in verse 2. And the word here, blessed, can sometimes be translated happy. But it's more than just an emotion. It's not, you know, you know, you know it's, not like, it's not like you fall into love, right? Or it's like being in love. It's not like that. It's not falling into happiness or being happy. But it is a state, a state of being blessed by God. It's a state of being happy before God. It's like someone saying to you, you can count yourself really fortunate. And that's what this word blessed is. It is an objective thing, not a subjective thing, right? It's not how you feel, it is a state where you are in a position where you should be happy, where you should count yourself fortunate. And the shocking thing is, is that this blessed person is a sinner, or she is a sinner. And to describe it, there are three, uh, if you go through this passage, if you really pay attention, uh, David the psalmist uses a lot of different words to describe the same things. Right, it's like the power of poetry. So three ways he describes sin. Verse 1, he says, It is transgressions whose transgressions are forgiven. Verse 2, whose sins are covered. And verse 3, even though the NIV says, Whose sin the Lord does not count against him. That's actually a different word. Uh, for those of you who are using the ESV or the NRSV, right, the word there is actually iniquity. Iniquity. It's, it literally it says, Whose iniquity... The law does not count or impute against him. And here, basically, there's three different angles of looking at sin or wrongdoing. The first one is transgression. 
where literally you've gone beyond a certain boundary. God has said you shouldn't go any further and you've gone beyond that boundary. You've transgressed that boundary. The second thing is sin. And it's like falling short of a target. You're supposed to reach this target, but you didn't get there. And this pastor, David Cook, uh, gave this wonderful illustration. It's like an archer, right? He's shooting at the target, the bullseye. He shoots the arrow, but it lands short. That's what sin is. You aim for a certain behavior, a certain conduct, but you've missed it. The last one is iniquity. Iniquity is where you're going along fine, but you've turned off to a wrong path of wrongdoing. And basically what David is trying to say through this three-four repetition is that he is a miserable sinner. Right? He's just a sinner. And one of the greatest early theologians, Augustine, used to put Psalm 32 up above his bed and he said, the beginning of knowledge is to know that I am a sinner. The beginning of knowledge is to know that I'm a sinner. And here, that's what uh, verse uh, 1 and 2 is about. Blessed is the man who knows that he's a sinner, but not just that he's a sinner, or she's a sinner, but they are forgiven sinners. Because each of these words for sin is paired up with another word, a word for forgiveness. And again, three different words. Three different words for sin, three different words for forgiveness. Blessed the man or is blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. And the word here, forgiven, is literally like you have this burden on your back. You have this burden on your back, and God lifts up this burden from you. Right? So if you look at this picture, okay, I got this from uh, my children's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, okay, which is a very good book, lots of illustrations, which are very spiritual. And it shows here this man called Christian, who's reading the Bible, and on his back is sin. Right? It's a picture of sin. And what this, the word here is, forgiveness is the idea of lifting up this burden from the Christian's back so that it no longer weighs upon this person. And he goes on to say, whose sins are covered. Now, nowadays when we say covered, uh, it has a very bad connotation, right? Because when you think of cover, you think cover up. There's a cover up, okay? And uh, I have experienced many cover ups in my life. I remember with my children, okay? I asked them to clean the room. And I said, okay, I'm going to come back in here in 15 minutes or half an hour, and I want this room completely clean. Oh, and then you walk in half an hour later, wow, the room is spotless. Right? There's, all the toys have disappeared, everything is displaced. Then you open the cupboard door, and oh, everything starts pouring, pouring out, right? Okay? That's a cover-up, right? Because you haven't actually solved the problem, you just moved it away where you can't see it. But that's not the meaning of this word. The meaning of this word is, is where God covers something permanently. It is no longer seen by God. He will never see it again. That's what it means to be covered. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 2, whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And this is a very important picture of sin because so often in the world we think of sin as something where if you do more good things than bad things, God is happy. Okay, so if you look at this in the picture here, alright, people think, you know, if you ask people are they going to heaven, they say yes. And you ask them, why are you going to heaven? Said because I've done more good things than bad things. Ever heard people say that before? Right? And they think, okay, if I do more good things than bad things, God will, God will be happy with me. But the picture here is of God who counts. He's like a, someone who is the, the perfect accountant. And he will count every wrongdoing, every transgression, every iniquity that you've done. So it's not so much whether you do more bad things or, or, or good things. I like to think of the picture like this. It's like when you go to the supermarket 
And everything you do, every wrong you do, is scanned into the computer and you have to pay for it one day. Right? It's all scanned in. But here, blessed is the man or the woman in whom God says, look, all these things that you've tallied up in your life, all these sins, I will not charge you, I will not count against you. So blessed is, if you look at the next slide, right? blessed is the man, okay, not, not, don't worry about that, blessed is the person who's forgiven, forgiven by God. But verse 2, right at the very last part, is a very strange verse, isn't it? the last part of verse 2. Turn your eyes to it. And in whose spirit is no deceit. In, his, in whose spirit is no deceit. It's a very strange verse because the first three verse sentences is all about what God is doing to the person. God is forgiving the person. God is lifting up the sin. God is not counting the sin to the person. But the last verse is what the person is doing to God. There is no deceit in this person. And the word deceit here means covering up, right? The deceitful behavior means you've done something wrong, but you pretend that there's nothing wrong. But here, it says God is only interested in forgiving people who are penitent. Okay, penitent is a very old-fashioned word. Penitent means someone who's willing to come before God, no cover-up, no excuses, no self-justification, no hedging, no spin doctoring, no blaming of others. They come before God and they say, I have done wrong. Now, it's very important for us to note here that if God says, blessed is the man in whose spirit is no deceit, it must show that we have a problem with deceitfulness. Don't you think so? God doesn't tell us to do something that we don't have a problem with. He's saying that we have a problem with deceitfulness and I think it's true. So during the last week, I thought, okay, I'll look around and think of what illustrations of deceitfulness I could see. So I was watching the golf last week, you know, the Ryder Cup. And I remember telling my relative, you know, I think it's really wrong that people boo and clap when people make mistakes, when your opponent makes mistakes, right? Because that's not good behavior. I mean, if, if your opponent hits the ball in the water, you shouldn't be clapping, right? If the opponent hits the ball on the ground, you shouldn't cheer. It's bad behavior. And my relative said to me, ah, oh, it's okay lah, everybody does it. See, that's deceitful behavior, isn't it? Because something is wrong, but you're saying, well, it's okay because everybody does it. And I remember watching this program about these people in American prisons. And I remember whenever you interview them, they never feel very guilty about being in prison. They always feel like actually it's very unfair that they're in prison. So they'll say, yeah, you know, I robbed someone, but at least I didn't injure them. I injured someone, but at least I didn't kill them. I killed that guy, but that guy already deserved it. I killed someone, but he didn't deserve it, but at least I'm not a pedophile. And we do that in our own life, isn't it? I've heard people say, well, you know, it's okay to watch pornography on the internet because I didn't hurt anybody. Uh, It's okay that I had an affair because I really loved that person and I wasn't feeling love at home. I didn't pay my taxes, but that's okay because you know the government is so rich anyway, right? See, all of us here have this deceitful behavior we don't want to call sin, sin, especially when we do it. And Adam and Eve, if you look up here, they did the same thing, right? What we are doing is not a new invention, it it is as old as creation. God came up to Adam and Eve and they asked, you know, look, guys, did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And what did Adam say? Yes, I sinned, God. He didn't say that. He said, no, 
It's not really my fault, it's the woman. The woman you put here with me, she was the one who got me to eat the fruit. And then the woman didn't say, no, yeah, 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 it's it's my fault. No, no, it's the serpent. The serpent you put in this garden. God, you see how you put this serpent here? Tempted me. See, that's deceitful behavior. We must call a spade a spade. We must call sin a sin. And what God is saying is, blessed is the person who is forgiven. But this forgiveness only comes with confession, with the desire to say, yes God, I sinned, I transgressed, I committed iniquity. So, if you look at this diagram, I think there's this virtuous circle, right? God wants to forgive you, but you can only be forgiven if you come to God in need of desire for forgiveness. Now, in verse 3 onwards, uh, David sort of shows a case study, right? Like a spiritual, you know, you have this medical case study. This is like a spiritual case study. And he shows his own life what happens when he fails to confess his sin. When he fails to uh, show a spirit which is not deceitful. And in verse 3 and 4 it says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And what, what he's saying here is, look, look at my condition. David says, in the past I sinned, but I wanted to keep it from God. I wanted to manage my sin myself. And what happened? I felt ill. My bones were wasted away. He doesn't mean here that he didn't drink enough calcium or aniline. Right? But he feels physically weak. Spiritually, emotionally, he feels God is against him. Now I know that from some of you in Bible study, you feel that this doesn't actually happen to you, right? You don't actually feel that way when uh, you have unconfessed sin. But personally, I want to tell you that happens to me. Uh, After I became a Christian, you can speak to my wife, my stomach is the barometer of my sin. If I have unconfessed sin in my life, if I uh, have done great things wrong, which I feel I have done things wrong against God, my stomach plays up. Because it's not as if I've eaten something wrong, not as if I've uh, eaten some uh, bad food, but it's because I feel physically ill because I've done something wrong. Now, I want to read to you this article uh, by this pastor who uh, was uh, in the grip of pornography and he... He didn't want to tell anybody. So let me read the words here. And I think they're very powerful because they they really ring true. He's in America, okay? I had felt all that remorse before. What shocked me more was my trip up the coast the next next two days. I followed my usual practice of staying in homey inns with big fireplaces and of eating by the waterfront and watching the sailboats bob in the shimmering sea of taking long solitary walks on the rocky promontories where huge waves crashed with thunder, of closing my eyes and letting salt spray splash across my face, of stopping at roadside stands for fresh lobster and crab. See, Singaporeans can identify that. There was a difference this time. I felt no pleasure, none. My emotional reaction was the same as if I had been at home yawning, reading the newspaper. All romance had drained out, desiccated. Uh, see, here's a person whose sin 
And because of that sin, their guilt and their conscience weighs so heavily on them, they cannot enjoy the things that they used to enjoy before. Now, uh, recently, there's this thing I read on the internet about this guy called Michael Gugliamucci. Okay, and uh, he, he apparently he's a youth pastor in a really huge uh, church in Australia. And uh, he had been addicted to pornography since the age of 12, but he never told anybody about it, even his own parents. And he was married with children. But uh, he told his uh, parents about it. Next slide. But the problem was that uh, because of his addiction, he was always sick. So as part of his double life, he told everybody that he had cancer. And because everybody thought he had cancer, there was this huge fundraising for him to help him for his medical bills. You can look up his name in the internet. He's very famous right in Australia. But actually all it was was that he was struggling with this sin of pornography and it was making him physically ill. Like As it says there, he was vomiting, he was getting nosebleeds, he was losing hair. And all this was because he was really struggling with pornography and, it, and, and, and he was not willing to confess it to God or to anybody else. Now, I think that uh, when we think about this, I want to help you think about it. Let's make it very clear that sickness is not because of unconfessed sin. Right? I mean, we, we, we are sick because we might be physically ill of real reasons. And uh, I don't want you to feel that if you're sick in any way, it's because you have some unconfessed sin in your life if you don't. But I think as well that unconfessed sin in your life should actually promote a negative reaction in you. If you look at verse 3 to verse 4, David, the psalmist, actually says that this pain and suffering is good. It is good for him. right? Because it takes him back into the blessed life. The pain and suffering actually takes him back to a life where he is not deceitful. I really think it's a very good observation of this pastor called Dick Lucas, who says... The big problem for many people is where you read Psalm 32 or you sit here in church and you listen to Psalm 32 and you say to yourself, I have nothing to confess. I am perfect. I have no sin in my life. Because it is the problem of a seared conscience. It is a problem of a heart which is hardened to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. If you can comfortably sit there with sin in your life and not feel any pain or discomfort, then you are experiencing spiritual leprosy. You know, you know, leprosy is where people have this disease and they can't feel pain in their hands and their feet and they can put it into boiling water, they can break their leg and they don't feel it. Well, that's what it is. If you have sin in your life and you don't feel like confessing it and you still feel okay, 100% and you're enjoying life, then you have spiritual leprosy. Because you are not attuned to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Your, your conscience is completely hardened against God. But David says here that he feels this great weight upon him because of his sin. And in verse 5, he says then, in verse 5, right then, because of this pain and suffering, this burden that he feels, then I acknowledge my sin to you, to God. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, here, 
I want you to notice something. In verse 5, he says, I did not cover up my iniquity. It's the same word in verse 2, right? In, uh, actually, if you look up here on the slide, there's actually a play on the words. That's why you need to pay attention to this verse. It's very, very, it's very deep, this verse. When we try to cover up our own iniquity, what happens? God sees through the cover-up. Because God sees everything. God knows everything. You cannot hide your sin from God. The Bible is very clear. Whatever is done in the darkness will be brought into the light. But the only one who can cover up our sins or cover our sins is God. When God covers something, it is permanent. It is done with. Right? God will not see it anymore. But when we try to cover up our sin, nothing happens. But look at how uh, in verse 5 to verse, uh, in verse 5, the same words are used. I will acknowledge my sin. I will acknowledge my iniquity. I will acknowledge my transgressions. The same words in verse 1 and 2. And the word here is my, my, my. What David is doing here is he's taking full responsibility of just how sinful he really is. Now, I think that it's so important for us to realize that we need to acknowledge just how sinful we are before God. There's this pastor, David Steele, who says that actually it is a problem for many churches and many Christians today that we do not really see just how sinful we are before God. And he says that the problem is for many Christians today, many churches, we are not interested in forgiveness. We are interested in respectability. I think that's very true, isn't it? People are not interested in God's forgiveness, but we are only interested in respectability before man. But verse 1 and 2 doesn't say, blessed are the respectable. It says, blessed are the forgiven. And we need to come before God and literally say, I have sinned. It is my sin. It is my iniquity. It is my transgression. But it is very hard to admit to God or even to other people that you have sinned. I remember telling a relative of mine, I said, you know, it's very strange. I noticed in your whole life that I've known you, you rarely say sorry. And this relative of mine said, well, that's because I'm rarely wrong. Right? And many people believe that. They really believe that they are rarely wrong. Like Elton John said, right, sorry seems to be the hardest word. I remember when I was in Australia, even now, they, they had a huge debate about how in Australia after the World War II, the white Australians took the Aboriginal children from their parents and forcibly put them into foster homes or boarding schools. And even 40 years later, many Australians say, we shouldn't say sorry for that because that was something that somebody else did. In your own life, uh, I was reading this book, right, for pastors called Going the Distance, and he says, uh, how often do you use these words in your common speech? How often do you say, I'm sorry? In your own life, how often do you say, I'm sorry? How often do you say, it is my fault? How often do you say, in your own life, please forgive me? Well, when I look in my own life, it's not very often, isn't it? I'm sorry, it is my fault, please forgive me. But that's what we need to say to God, and we need to say it often because we are very sinful. We are miserable sinners. In the Lord's Prayer, which you see up here in Luke 11, every day we ask God, give us each day our daily bread. 
But every day we also say to God, forgive us our sins. Because we need to recognize that every day we sin as well. Now, I remember uh, when I was uh, driving past this construction site, it says, accident prevention is our number one attention. Well, when you look at Psalm 32, confession is our number one attention. Confession is our number one intention because we were not made to carry our sins. God wants to lift it up. God wants to forgive us. Now, in verse 6 onwards, um, Paul then, uh, sorry, uh, David then goes on to say, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while he may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place and you will protect me from trouble. And surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the, the horse or the mule, which have no understanding and must be controlled by bit or bridle, bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in Him. Now, here I want you to note it's a Again, there's so many things here that you could talk about. But in verse 6 and verse 9, we need to pray to God. We need to come to God. Verse 6 and verse 9. Come to God, pray to God. And we come and pray to God in conversion. And here, in verse 6 to 10, it's all about the privilege of those who come and pray to God. And in verse uh, 7, it says, You are my hiding place, right? God becomes our hiding place. No longer does He press upon us. He becomes our protector. And verse 7, He surrounds me with songs of deliverance. Now, the first, again, you know, the words keep playing repetitively here. Verse 10, He says the same thing. The, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in Him. Can you see that in verse 7 and verse 10? The last part of 7, the last part of 10, we are surrounded by songs of deliverance. We are surrounded by God's unfading love. It's a bit like walk, going to a movie or you have your own home theater with your 7.1 speakers and you're surrounded by, by sound. Okay, like you're, There's this wall of sound surrounding you. A sea of sound. And that's what the picture is here. Literally, when you come to God, when you pray to God in confession, God's love surrounds you. You're surrounded by a song of deliverance. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think that now we live this side of Jesus, we can see exactly what it means. Because here, in uh, Romans chapter 4, right, it quotes from Psalm chapter one, uh, 32, verse 1 and 2. It says, What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. What he's saying is, we are surrounded by deliverance, we are surrounded by love because we are now righteous. We are now righteous. We are now, you know what righteous means? We are now right before God. 
God is not angry with us. God is, is our friend. God is now considers us His family. And it comes about through faith. Through faith, isn't it? Not because of the things that we do. It comes about because we come to God in faith. Now, if you look at this other passage, this passage is a very important passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Alright? So all this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. You see the word here? He's not counting our sins against us. And He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Abraham was looking forward to Jesus. David was looking forward to Jesus. We look back to Jesus. And what do we see? We see in Jesus, God not counting our sins against us. We see God lifting up our sins. See, verse 21 is the key here, isn't it? God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the picture here is actually perfect, right? Because it says that this sin that we have, God lifts it up and puts it on Jesus. God no longer counts it on us, the Christian. God no longer sees it on us, he forgives it, because it is now on Jesus. And the righteous, perfect righteousness of Jesus is now seen in us. And therefore, we are surrounded by God's deliverance, we are surrounded by God's love. Let me ask you, is that the blessed life or not? Is that the good life? I think so, because when you have a God who sees every sin that you have, if you really believe that God will count every sin that you've done in your life against you, and you will have to pay for it one day, there is no greater blessing than for God to say, no charge. No charge because Jesus has paid it all for you. Because I've laid it now on Jesus at the cross. And that's why in verse 11, turn to me, look down in your Bibles, verse 11, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. See, David has gone from being wasted in his bones, groaning all day long to verse 11, rejoicing and singing and being glad in his heart. Why? Because he can see that God has forgiven his sins. Because it is such a great blessing. Do you feel the way David does? Do you identify with his emotions? Do you see what a great blessing it is that God has forgiven you your sins? I noticed someone uh, once said this, David, Dick Lucas made a good point. He said, you know, when you all come and sing, right, this morning, when you all sing all the songs that we were led to sing, do you sing with joy? Now, I remember I was speaking to some of the people in the youth group. I said, how come you guys don't sing so loud? That, oh, yeah, you know, singing, not very cool, right? And then sometimes you speak to some other people and say, why do you sing? Oh, my, uh, my singing, uh, a bit toned there. And uh, this Dick Lucas said, better to sing the wrong note than to stand here and not sing. Because when we sing, we sing to God. We sing to God in, in praise of Him for what He's done for us. 
And when we read Psalm 32, we should, we should bring into our heart just how fortunate we are. God has forgiven us all our sins, every single sin that we have done. And we should sing for joy to Him. Now, I think that this passage basically speaks to two groups, right? Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-Christians. Now, for Christians, I think the great warning for us is, if you've been in church for a long time, if you've grown up in a Christian home, you may think to yourself, maybe you won't say it because it sounds a bit proud to say it, but you may think in your heart, actually, I don't really have that much wrong with me. You know, really, God should be pretty happy to have a Christian like me, right? I mean, I think I'm a pretty good person. But actually, David shows us in the psalm, we are full of transgressions. We are full of sin. We are steeped in iniquity. We are just miserable sinners. I was reading this other book, uh, Letters Along the Way, which is about the Christian life. Right? And he makes a good point. He says that actually as you read the Bible, more the longer you are as a Christian, the more you grow in Christ, the more sensitive you are to the Spirit's prompting, the more tender your conscience, the more you realize how sinful you are. Isn't that true? The things that you did consider to be sinful when you first became a Christian, as you grow in Christ, you should consider maybe, yes, maybe that, that isn't what is pleasing to God. It is the same for me. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was reading this book, Should We Use Someone Else's Sermon? Okay? And as I was reading it, oh, I thought, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe you, should, you should actually uh, give references more. You shouldn't actually just take without uh, saying that you took it. And that's why in the outline, you know, there's a little source thing at the bottom. And that's why I, I'm telling people that, you know, this pastor said it. Because, you know, the more you examine yourself in the light of God's word, then you need, the more you need to say, yes, something is not right. Now, we are forgiven not because we come to church on a Sunday. We're forgiven not because we go to Bible study group. But we're forgiven because we see sin for what it is and we confess it to God. So if you're a long-time Christian in church, you're a Christian who's born into a Christian family, the challenge here is, verse 30, Psalm 32 is, are you really looking at yourself the way God looks at you? And are you really blind, sorry, naked before God? And say, yes, I have sinned. It is my con- transgression. It is my sin. It is my iniquity. I have done wrong. Forgive me, God. If you're a non-Christian, or maybe you're not really sure about the Christian faith, whether you're a Christian or not, then I think this is a very great summary of the Christian message. When I was growing up, I went to a Christian school, and I always thought that being a Christian was just being a good person. But actually, being a Christian is not being a good person, it's being a forgiven person. The goal of life is not to get richer, healthier, smarter. The goal of life is to be reconciled with God, to be righteous before God, to be forgiven before God. That is the experience of David, and he says that is true, blessed living. That is being really fortunate before God. In conclusion, what is the warning though? The warning is, we must find God and seek God and confess to Him while He may be found in verse 6. Because there is a time where God will not be found anymore. Now that we are on this side of the cross, Jesus could come tomorrow. Jesus could come this afternoon. And if you do not confess your sins before God, if you're not serious about sin in your life, it will be too late. We might die suddenly. I uh, found this uh, quote by this guy called Robert 
Mariam Shane in my uh, daily readings, and it's a really powerful quote, I thought. If you die wrong the first time, you cannot come back and die better a second time. If you die without Christ, you cannot come back and be converted and die a believer. You have but once to die. Pray that you may find Christ before death finds you. Wow, that's very powerful, man. Pray that you may find Christ before Christ finds you. See, it's very clear in verse 8 that God will not treat you like an animal, right? He will not tie this rope around your neck. He will not drag you to come to Him. You must choose to come to God. In life, there are only two sorts of people. There are forgiven sinners and there are unforgiven sinners. Psalm 32 says, Be a forgiven sinner. That is a blessed life. Say to God, yes, it is my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. Dear Father, I need you to lift it up. I need you to, to, to cover up this sin for me. I want you to, to not count it against me. And the only way that happens is to come to Jesus because He is our righteousness. When we come to Jesus in faith and confess our sins, we are surrounded, literally surrounded, like the air around us by God's love and songs of deliverance. So let's come to God and confess our sins. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see Help us to see our sin and our spiritual and moral state with your eyes and not the world's eyes. Help us to be totally honest, awfully honest before you and to call sin what it is, that it is sin. That we will not be deceitful in this world where more and more everything is okay and nothing is wrong. To not say other people do it, uh, I had reasons, or this happened and that happened, therefore I did this. But to see it as our choice, as our wrongdoing against you, as our transgression against you, as our iniquity against you, as our sin against your standard. Help us to see we have failed to reach your standard. We have missed the mark. We have gone off the road of righteousness. Help us to see how really blessed it is to be forgiven by you. Help us to see that Jesus died for our sins and that for Him to die shows just how serious the problem of sin is in our life. Help us to come before You on our knees, dear Father, to confess our sins and to have the great confidence and joy to rejoice and sing and to know that we have been delivered from our sin, that You love us and we are righteous before You. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.